Well, good morning, everybody. If you were here last week, you know that we're doing, uh, as we start in the new year, we're doing this quick dive into the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to do last Sunday and this Sunday and take a look at Jonah's life and what we can learn from it. Uh, I always think of Jonah, and I just refer to him as the reluctant prophet, right? I mean, you read all four chapters of the book of Jonah, and you realize Jonah might have done what God asked him to do, but he usually did it reluctantly, and he never did it quite exactly the way God asked him to do it. You know, and I, and I just read this, and I go, what in the world could Jonah have been thinking, right? I mean, we know the end of the story, so it's, it's tough for us to wrap our minds around what Jonah might have been thinking or feeling as all of these things happened in his life, and as he runs away from God. Like, what was he thinking when God said, go, and so he went down to the nearest dock and bought a ticket to Tarshish and he sailed west when God said, go east. What was Jonah thinking when God hurls this storm at the ship that he's on? What was Jonah thinking when the sailors did what he asked and threw him over the side of the ship into that hurricane force wind and water? What was in his mind? I'm confident at the moment that he went over the rail, he thought he was going to die. But then he got swallowed by a great fish. I'm pretty sure he didn't think that was going to happen, right? It was a little wrinkle in the story he hadn't anticipated. It's hard to imagine all the thoughts and feelings that went through Jonah as he walked through his story. And we can put ourselves in the story and we can just think about it. What's our typical reaction when a whale-sized problem comes into our life. You know, do we, are you one of those people who tends to embrace and march ahead into the uncertainty with confidence? Or maybe you're one of those people who, when something bad happens, you tend to catastrophize your problems. Do you drift towards complaining? Or are you one of those people that naturally tries to stay on the solution side of things? We don't know what Jonah's typical response, but we do know his specific response in this situation. And it's one of the first positive steps we see in Jonah's life in this story. When the Bible says Jonah prayed to God, prayed an earnest, honest prayer to God from deep inside the belly of that whale. You know, I'm confident Jonah had no idea where the plot line of his life story was going to take him. Uh, but the one thing he does know for certain is that his disobedience is what has caused his current situation. It's why he's in the belly of this great fish. He confessed as much to the sailors before they threw him overboard, and then he confessed it to God from deep inside this fish. He prays, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. Land of the dead is a real generous translation of what Jonah said. Some other translations really are much more specific. The language he uses in the original Hebrew is, I cried out to you, God, from the depths of hell. Now, that paints an accurate picture of how Jonah feels about his circumstances, right? I sank beneath the waves. This is like his account of what happened when he was tossed overboard from the ship. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. 
I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth, whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O Lord my God, you snatched me from the jaws of death. That's a first sign that we see that Jonah's attitude is beginning to change. That this fish who first swallowed him in the depths of the ocean was not there to kill him as a punishment from God, but he was actually a part of God's divine mercy in Jonah's life. I may not initially have felt that way, but over the three days that he spends inside of that fish, Jonah's attitude and opinion of his current circumstances turns around. He gets some perspective. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord. And my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercy. That's a a confession from Jonah. Because the idea of turning, you know, worshiping a false god is putting anything in God's place in our lives. Following anything other than what God tells us to do. Putting something in his proper place in our life as the leader and guider of our life. And Jonah's like, that's what I've done. I've actually done this and turned my back on your mercy. But I now I will offer you sacrifices with songs of praise. I'll fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. It's a very humble prayer with some big promises from Jonah. And within it, I think, is the the change of heart that God's been looking for from Jonah all along. And so God gives Jonah a second chance. The Bible says the Lord then ordered the fish to spit Jonah out on the beach. And then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. And he tells him the exact same command in Jonah 3, the first verse, as he did in Jonah 1, the first verse. Get up, go into the great city of Nineveh, and deliver the message I've given to you. And this time, things are different. This time, Jonah obeys God's command and he goes to Nineveh. Now, I really don't think I've ever fully wrapped my head around the significance of those last few words there of he went to the city of Nineveh. I mean, I, I, in my life, I've always pictured that as kind of like, well, this fish vomited him up on the shore. He cleaned himself up and just went like, you know, a few blocks and walked into the city. It's not how it happened. Nineveh was 400 miles inland from the closest port on the Mediterranean. 400 miles. That's a long walk. It's about a three-week journey by foot. It would be comparable to you in your agony and your grief, if the Bears lose today, walking to Charleston, West Virginia. There's a lot of rough country and some even rougher people between here and Charleston, West Virginia, right? I mean, let's just assume that somehow you make it through the south side of Chicago walking. Let's just assume that you make it through Gary, Indiana walking. Based on my family's roots in the hills of eastern Kentucky, you haven't even hit the hardest trouble yet, right? You're going to be walking through some rough terrain with mountains, and you're going to be walking with some even rougher people than there are on the south side of Chicago. In that three-week journey, there was a lot of time for Jonah to think and rethink his promises to God, to second-guess what he's about to do. And to his credit, 
Jonah sticks to his promise. And he gets to the city, and on the day he entered the city, the Bible says, he shouted at the crowds. It's not a great way to begin. He shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The Bible doesn't give us a clue why that message was so short. Some scholars have said they think it was because of the language difference between the language the Assyrians spoke and the language that Jonah spoke. My guess is it had more to do with Jonah's heart issue than it did a language issue. His heart wasn't in this. So he gave a really short message. And he gave the message in one of the most unattractive presentation styles I think I've ever seen. Jonah was blunt. He was almost rude. He was shouting at the people. I don't think his heart was in it. I think he was obeying God on the outside, but in his heart, he was still rebelling against what God had told him to do. Ever been there? He didn't really want the Ninevites to change their ways. He didn't want God to let them off a hook. He wanted God to destroy them. So you can imagine Jonah's frustration when the people of God, when the people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, from the king on the throne of Assyria in Nineveh to the poorest poor person on the streets, everyone declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. And when God saw that what they had done and how they'd put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and didn't carry out the destruction he had threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became angry, very angry. And so he complained to the Lord about it and said, Hey, didn't I say this was what was going to happen before I left home? Isn't that what I said, Lord? That's why I ran to Tarshish. I mean, I can't put enough anger in the tone that I think Jonah had there. Um, It's your fault, God. Why did you let this happen? I mean, it's, it's somewhere between a violent rage of an adult and the angry temper tantrum of a toddler, either one not getting their way. That's the tone I think Jonah has with God. I love his honesty. I love the fact that God has broad shoulders, didn't just strike him dead on the spot. I love that God can handle us being honest with him. But Jonah isn't done. He says, I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God. He says this stuff like it's a bad thing. I knew you were merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, slow to be frustrated with people, filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, God. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted isn't going to happen. He's a little bit dramatic here, don't you think? When he's done yelling at God, the Bible says Jonah goes outside the city of Nineveh, finds this little hill where he can see the whole city, and he builds a shelter, a a shanty, a lean-to, some kind of a structure overlooking the city. He sits down inside of it, and he waits for God to rain down terror on Nineveh. Stays there long enough. We don't know how long. He waits long enough that this little plant sprouts beside his shack and it grows into this vine that covers the shack and provides him shelter from the wind and the sun it cools him in the heat of the day he gets quite comfy as he's nursing his anger and resentment towards God 
And just when it starts to feel homey, God sends a worm. This little worm that gets into the vine and cuts it off and the vine dies. It destroys the vine that Jonah's come to love. And so Jonah restarts his shouting match with God and says, death has to be better than living like this. Kill me now. Jonah hears God speak again. God says, you feel sorry about that plant, don't you? Even though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people. That word could also be translated children. Nineveh has more than 120,000 children living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And that, that's where the story ends. I I like stories that I read to have a, a better ending, don't you? A little more closure about what's happening. I mean, I read this this account of Jonah's life, and I'd love it if there were like two or three more verses. Just bring it all to a closure. Like, Jonah saw the error of his ways and followed God faithfully the rest of his days. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Even just a tagline that says, as a memory to God's mercy, Jonah never ate fish again. Something. But it's not there. So it forces us to dig deeper into the book because I believe that every story that's in Scripture, every page of the Bible has something to teach us. As I've lived with and wrestled with Jonah's story over the last few weeks, I've come to a couple of things I just want to share this morning that are lessons that God wants us to learn from Jonah's story. And I'm skipping some of the obvious stuff. Like, if God speaks to you directly, it's a good idea to do what he says. Right? I mean, that one seems kind of obvious. There's others in there. There are a couple more that were a little deeper down when you drill down into the story. The first of those is this. Our reaction to events in our life usually reveals what we truly believe. Let me explain. When something happens in our life, good or bad, anything happens in our life, we tend to react in one of two ways. Some of us in the room this morning tend to react more with emotion and then we think later. Some of us do just the opposite. When something happens, we tend to think and then later on the emotions come in. And it may be a short or a long period of time. So, for example, this morning when I said that, if you got angry because I was categorizing people, you're probably what? You're responding with emotion. If you're still sitting there thinking about which one you are, you're probably responding with logic to what's happening in the room. No matter which one you are, your reaction comes because an event has happened in your life that has tripped over some belief that you hold, some core belief or core value in your life. That's what triggers our response. Let me give you a personal example. In the fall of 1984... Connie uh, came home from a routine doctor's appointment. She'd not been feeling great. She had some flu-like symptoms, you know, a little nausea, a little vomiting, and she was just tired from it all. I mean, now that was partially understandable because we had a 10-month-old baby at home. 
I think we were both tired, more tired than we'd ever been in our lives with a 10-month-old baby. But the nausea and the vomiting, we were getting concerned about, so she went to the doctor. And it turns out, the doctor said, that those flu-like symptoms are very common, especially in women who are in the early months of their pregnancy. Yeah. We both had very different reactions to the news that our second child was on the way while our first child was just 10 months old. Connie immediately began to cry. And she cried a lot, right? Um, Her emotions were immediate. Now, she was thinking through things as well, but the immediate reaction was emotion. Me, I cried too, but for a lot of different reasons. For me, my mind was reeling, okay? We didn't have health insurance to cover the birth of our first child, so we're still paying off the hospital bill, and we find out, I'm over it, can you tell by my tense? Um, We're still struggling to pay for the first child, now another one's on the way. We don't have the money to pay for the pregnancy care leading to the birth, let alone the birth, and beyond that, how do you care for a... You know, a kid that's 17 months old and an infant at the same... That's just a lot. We wanted our kids close together, but not that close together. It's going to wreck us. That's what went through my head first. This is going to wreck us in more ways than just financially. Does this make sense? Okay. We each had different reactions. They stemmed, in this case, from a same common belief. We weren't ready for a second child. And so our reactions in life, whether they're thoughts, processing things logically, or emotions, almost always come because some event, some activity in our life has rubbed up against a core belief. Now, we don't often connect the two as we're living day to day. We don't connect our thoughts, our emotions with an event that happens. We don't process it that way. But the challenge for us in that moment is to try to think through Why am I having this reaction? What's the hook that all this is hanging on? Why am I thinking this way? Why am I feeling this way? To examine that core belief in the moment and determine from that how we will respond and react. And even if that makes sense, it's tough to do. Let me apply it to Jonah's story. Think about Jonah's reaction. When God spared Nineveh, what was Jonah's reaction? The Bible says he got very angry. His his emotions boiled over almost immediately. And I love God's response to him. Um, And actually, that's in the Hebrew text. That word for um is there. Um, Is it right for you to be angry about this, Jonah? Jonah, what's the hook that strong emotion is hanging on? Take a look at your core belief, Jonah. Is that worth hanging on to? Really? What's behind your anger? Well, if you read the passage clearly, it's not what I think it is. When you read the passage, it's very clear that God wasn't objecting. I'm sorry, Jonah wasn't objecting to God's decision simply based on some moral high ground. Jonah wasn't claiming moral purity compared to the Ninevites. Jonah wasn't saying, these are horrible, awful people, they deserve to die. I'm sure those thoughts were in there, but his primary objection was because his pride was hurt. God, I'd rather be dead, Jonah said. 
I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted isn't going to happen. Jonah wasn't protesting because of the heart condition of the Ninevites. He's not any better than the people of Nineveh. I mean, just think through the last few weeks of his life. It was a series of nautical misadventures all brought about because of his disobedience to God. He's no better than the people of Nineveh. I think the core issue for Jonah was he really wanted to control who second chances were given to and when they were given. And it's pretty easy for us to fall in that trap. We get hurt. Somebody does something. Something happens in our life. We often find ourselves in a place where we're wanting justice. We're praying for God's justice for them. When it's kind of the same point in our life where we're praying for mercy and grace. So God says to Jonah, check out that hook your anger is hanging on. Is it right for you to believe what you believe and then to have that response? Is that belief really something you want to hang on to? It's a good question for us to remember from Jonah's story. Next time we have a strong emotional reaction to something, what's the hook? Next time we come to a rational, well-thought-out conclusion that we're arguing vehemently with someone, Listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because he'll be whispering in your ear. What's this really about? Is it right for you to object so strongly? There are so many more lessons we could learn from the book of Jonah. But let me just do one more this morning that I think is more subtle in Jonah's story. Why does God offer Jonah a second chance? A third chance. A fourth chance. I mean, more accurately, I think if we had a nice ending to Jonah's story, it'd probably go, and Jonah continued to struggle with God's grace and God's mercy and obedience for the rest of his days. Why? Why is God so patient with Jonah? Why does he offer those second chances to me and to you? I think it's because God is ultimately more concerned with what we're becoming than what we're doing. It's not that God doesn't care about what we do. You know, that when we're helping the poor and the needy or when we're sinning against Him, all of those things matter to God. In fact, the obedience thing is a big deal. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I've commanded. And we do obey for the most part, some days are better than others. But our relationship with God is not simply about our obedience. Thankfully, our spiritual growth path is not all about a strict adherence to a set of commands because despite our best efforts, we never get it absolutely right. We never obey flawlessly, no matter who we are. And that's okay. God knows that about us. And I think he's always more concerned about the condition of our heart first before the behavior. Who are we becoming 
as we walk through this life and try to live the life that Jesus calls us to. Because if we get that part right, the behaviors fall in line. So it's good for us to stop every once in a while and just ask, who am I becoming? And what's God thinking about that? I wrestled with that thinking about being in this setting this morning. And here's the truth about me. And I'm pretty sure I've talked about this before. I know the pattern for the men in my family. I know our history back at least four generations. The men in my family typically have a lot of harsh, rough edges in their relationships. We tend to lack what we would call today an emotional and relational intelligence. It's not in huge supply. And the pattern for men in my family only gets worse over time. We don't age like a fine bottle of wine. Men in my family tend to age like a bottle of milk. Which is not good news for my wife. And so knowing that about my family, having dealt with this for years, I have this list of character traits that I want to be true about me and the way I behave, of things I want to pass on to my son and my daughter. I want to be more gentle, more patient than my father and grandfather and great-grandfather were. I want to be a kind person. Now, I know from my life experience at 58 years old that I can't simply become a better person. I can't develop these traits in my life by trying harder. That takes an amount of focus that I just don't have. There are so many traits I want in my life, I can't stay focused on all of them all the time. I keep it real, I can't stay focused on one of them for very long. It's just how we're wired. But here's what I know to be true. The more time I spend with God, the more I begin to see deep and lasting changes in my character, in my personality, in who I am becoming. And that makes sense. And God says to us in Galatians, it's the Holy Spirit that produces that kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace. He makes us patient, kind. He brings out goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When I spend time soaking in God's truth from the Bible into my life, when I spend time being real and honest with God in my prayers, and when I spend time listening to what he would say back to me. When I do those things, it's pretty clear that God softens the harsh edges in my life. And I'm well aware that even while God's doing this work, it's still possible for me to wound people with my words. I just know that it happens less. And the gaps get greater 
as I spend more time with God. And I become keenly aware of the man I'm becoming with God's help. We read the story of Jonah and it becomes immediately apparent that there's a little bit of Jonah in every one of us. Every one of us has an issue in our life that we need to deal with or we are dealing with. And instead of facing that sometimes, we want to do like Jonah. We want to get on a boat headed in the opposite direction. We want to run to Tarshish when following following God gets tough. That's why I'm grateful for Jonah. I'm grateful that God gave Jonah a second chance. Again. And again. And again. I'm grateful for his tender mercy. Jonah's story gives us hope. A hope that no matter where we are in our spiritual journey, God isn't done with us. And that while he works in us, he waits patiently for us. Whether we're running towards him or away from him. He just waits in his mercy and grace. He waits to offer us another chance at a fresh start.